good morning. And uh, um, it's it's really a pleasure uh, to have you again. Like we have done the uh, Free Rohingya Coalition podcast with you um, after a Gregory um, Sentence podcast. Uh, um, but I want to introduce you to those who may have missed that podcast. Um, I am um, hosting a, a conversation with uh, Michael Becker, an American legal scholar uh, in his final uh, phase of uh, you know PhD thesis writing in international law at Cambridge University, and he's teaching law at um, Trinity College um, in Dublin, Ireland, and um, perhaps uh, most relevantly, uh, he was associate legal officer with the International Court of Justice, where the Gambia versus Myanmar or you know, for us uh, uh, lay persons, um, the genocide, uh, Rohingya genocide case. And Michael has uh, graciously uh, agreed to speak on important developments surrounding the Gambia versus Myanmar case. Um, on the 2nd of September this week, um, the Canada and um, um, the Netherlands, the Canadian and Dutch government, jointly announced their official decision to intervene in the Gambia versus Myanmar case, uh, you know, clearly in support of the Gambia and also rallying other member states who are considered uh, states parties to the Genocide Convention. Um, Mike, can you explain to us, um, you know, um, uh, activists and lay citizens who are not um, familiar with the um, uh, the workings of the court. What does an intervention in an ongoing legal dispute at the ICJ mean? What does it entail? Sure. Uh, well, good morning. Good morning from Ireland. And just to be clear, um, in, in relation to your kind introduction, Zarni, so I was an associate legal officer at the International Court of Justice, but I left in 2014, so long before this case uh, got underway, just to be clear about that. Yeah, so what is intervention? Well, this was pretty um, interesting and exciting news uh, with Canada and, and the Netherlands making this announcement about their joint intention to intervene. Um, and of course, remember that several months ago, we heard something similar from the Maldives, which has indicated it also plans to intervene. So we might have three states um, formally becoming involved in the case. So what does intervention actually mean? Uh, well, it can mean a few different things, but in the most basic sense, if the requirements for intervention are met, and we can talk a little bit about what those are, um, those states, so let's say Canada and the Netherlands, um, will be able to formally participate in the proceedings as they go forward. So that means that they would receive the various uh, written legal arguments that the Gambia and Myanmar are making to the court, plus the evidence, the documentary evidence that both sides are relying upon, and would then be able to make, um, the intervening states would be able to make their own written arguments. So they'd be able to write legal briefs to the court on certain uh, aspects of the case. Now, the types of arguments they're allowed to make depends on how they intervene. And I'll come back to that in a second. Um, 
in addition to then making these written submissions to the court, um, when the court eventually holds an oral hearing with the judges all sitting across at the, at the big bench in the beautiful Great Hall of Justice, and hopefully at that point, um, we're past the restrictions imposed by the coronavirus and people can actually appear in person, not virtually. Um, so when the Gambia and Myanmar gather again, as they did last December, as people might remember, for the provisional measures hearing, when they get together again for the hearing on the merits, the states that have intervened would also be allowed to participate to some extent in those proceedings. So if the Netherlands and Canada intervene, um, they would have a delegation or both of their delegations uh, there as well in the courtroom and would be allocated time to make certain statements, uh, to respond to the arguments that the Gambia and Myanmar have made. And then the Gambia and Myanmar, of course, also are given time to respond to whatever the intervening states have said. So that's the basic idea. Um, it's pretty unusual. There aren't too many uh, cases in the history of the ICJ where states have intervened, where you have more than two states involved, although there have been a number in the last um, 10 or 15 years or so, and there were a couple during my time, uh, the four years when I was working at the court. Um, there's a few more technical points, and I don't. I want to try to prevent, avoid getting too technical uh, in this discussion. Um, one thing that Canada and the Netherlands have to decide is whether they are trying to intervene as what are called non-parties or as parties. If you intervene as a party, it's like you you have the same status as as the Gambia. Let's say. Um, what's more likely is that they intervene as non-parties, which might seem like a strange idea. How can you be a non-party to the case? Um, what that means uh, in some ways, it has to do with the effect of the court's eventual decision on those states. Um, that's part of it. Uh, but I, I kind of want to set aside this question of are they going to be parties or non-parties? I have a, a feeling they will try to come in as non-parties. Um, the bigger decision that Canada and the Netherlands have to make, if they haven't already made it, uh, and the Maldives as well, is which path to intervention they want to take, because there are two different ways to do it. Um, and maybe I can just outline those briefly, trying to keep it you know, understandable for those, those listening who aren't as deep in the weeds of the ICJ as, as I am. Um, one way to intervene is what's called kind of intervention by right. So if a case like the case we're talking about, the uh, Gambia against Myanmar, if a case has to do with a multilateral treaty, so that means a treaty with more than two parties. And in this such case- Such as the uh, ge genocide convention. Such as the genocide because convention. Because it has 151 state parties, right? Exactly. So where you have a case about the genocide convention, there's a provision of the court's statute, which is the document that, that sets forth all the, the powers and um, the working practices of the court. Um, there's a provision that says if a case uh, is about um, alleged violations of a multilateral treaty, any party to the treaty, any other state party, not just the, the country that has brought the case, has a right to intervene. And so that means that really any party to the Genocide Convention could avail itself of this right under Article 63 to come in as an intervening state. The catch 
is that the intervention is limited if you do it that way. So there'd really be no argument against, you know, Myanmar wouldn't really be able to object to the Netherlands or Canada coming in on this ground as long as Canada and the Netherlands can show that they are indeed parties to the Genocide Convention. But the catch is that the extent of their intervention has some restrictions on it. In theory, uh, if you intervene in that way, your intervention is limited to stating your position on how you think the multilateral treaty, so here the Genocide Convention, should be interpreted. So that means that um, Canada and the Netherlands wouldn't, uh, for example, really be supposed to address the specific allegations against Myanmar. They wouldn't be able to make arguments about how the court should treat evidence that the Gambia is putting in front of it. They would be limited to making, in some ways, a, a kind of abstract or theoretical argument about here is how Article 2 of the Genocide Convention should be interpreted. That's the provision of the Genocide Convention that, that uh, really defines what, what genocide. constitutes genocide. Can I, can I just stop you there for a moment? Because, um, you know, um, uh, on a different matter, um, you know, you co-author a piece in the Opinion Jurist um, recently. Uh, one of your um, uh, Canadian co-authors, who's also... Um, I, I take it, um, uh, you know, one of your fellow uh, PhD candidates at uh, Cambridge uh, from uh, Montreal, right? Yeah. He was saying, uh, you know, that the, uh, the he was he wrote um, he wrote a piece urging Canada to intervene because the um, the use of sexual violence in commissioning the crime of genocide by Myanmar against the Rohingya community or group was so prominent that uh, Canada as a country that claimed to pursue feminist uh, foreign policy, right? Um, so that one was the substantive argument that um, that would take or push Canada into intervening as a party in simply as like demanding uh, that um, you know the um, the perpetrating of or treaty violating state of Myanmar, uh, you know, explains or answers to the rest of the state parties. Am I am I correct in uh, in saying that there are two elements uh, uh, to this intervention? Yeah, potentially Canada can take the uh, you know stronger. Um, you know, inter intervention role, right? Uh, the, if it is to go or, or uh, uh, to focus on the sexual violence aspect, because it, it, it will not be content to play a um, non-party role. Well, uh, yeah, let me address. So, yeah, you're referring to, uh, so the person, we, I guess we're going to talk about this blog post later in our conversation, maybe. Um, that I co-authored with uh, Kingsley Abbott from the International Commission of Jurists, and then the person you're referring to, uh, Bruno uh, Galinas Fauché, who indeed is also a, a PhD candidate at, at Cambridge and a Canadian um, international lawyer. Uh, and he did, and Bruno, in fact, did write a piece last May making the case for why not only Canada should try to intervene in this case, but as you say, um, with a focus specifically on the sexual and gender-based uh, 
crimes that are a part of the allegations. And very interestingly, um, in the announcement that Canada and the Netherlands made yesterday, they, uh, I don't know if they were reacting to Bruno, Bruno or not, but they said specifically that they intend to assist with complex legal issues in the case, but with special attention to crimes related to sexual and gender-based violence. So, but to your point, that doesn't really, um, whether they come in as a party or a non-party, I don't think is that Im important on that question. But to, to your point, and going back to what I was saying, I think Canada or the Netherlands could come in under this more limited um, right of intervention based on simply being a treaty party. And you would be able to make extensive arguments about the ways in which Article 2 of the Genocide Convention should be interpreted to better account for sexual and gender-based crimes. Because one of the criticisms of the court's case law and maybe more generally um, case law from the uh, ad hoc tribunals in The Hague um, is that they haven't uh, gone far enough in understanding the ways that sexual and gender-based uh, violence reflect genocidal intent and um, can be part of a complex of, of activity that does amount to genocide. And so even coming in as a, as a non-party under Article 63, um, just because you're a treaty party and you'd have the right to do it, you wouldn't have to really fight to be allowed to participate in the case. Uh, Canada would be able to make those those arguments, they, and they don't have to be able to specifically um, address the facts in the case to do that, because they know what the facts in the case are. They can develop their legal arguments about how the court should interpret the Genocide Convention with the full knowledge of what the Gambia is putting in as factual evidence. So I don't think that that really poses that, you know, that doesn't restrain them necessarily. Um, and it seems like that, you know, is is going to be uh, where they're they're focused, um, which is really interesting. So let me let me just go back and finish the thought. And here are the two ways you can intervene because there's this easier way, but it's somewhat more limited. And then there's another way, which is uh, under another provision of the court statute, Article 62, for anyone who's taking careful notes here today. Um, but that's a different test, and it's a much more demanding test, and it's permissive. So whereas if you're just a party to the Genocide Convention, you can come in, it's, a, it's intervention by right. You have a right to intervene. Under this other test, the court has to grant you permission to do it, and you have to request the, the right to intervene, um, or in, you have to request intervention. And the test is this. You have to show that you have, you the state, have an interest of a legal nature that may be affected by the decision in the case. And there have been a, a few successful attempts to intervene in cases on, on that basis, mainly, um, not exclusively, but some have, have been kind of boundary cases where you have two states fighting over a boundary and a third state says, well, how you decide this is going to affect me. Uh, although even those types of interventions haven't always been accepted. Um, and the, I guess what I'd say is the court's case law on what exactly is a legal, uh, a, an interest of a legal nature that may be affected does not do a lot to clarify what that actually means. Um, the advantage though of coming in under Article 62 instead of Article 63, so if you're able to show that you have an interest of a legal nature that may be affected, um, you're not limited to just 
um, offering your position on how the court should interpret the Genocide Convention. You would have a much freer hand to address almost any issue in the case. So that might be one reason why Canada and the Netherlands decide, well, let's try to intervene under Article 62. And as a fallback, we will say if the court rejects um, our application there, we, we would like to come in under the other provision where they most certainly would be allowed to intervene. Um, the other um, consideration here is that how you intervene, how a state joins the case, has some legal implications for that state down the road. So if a state intervenes as a non-party uh, on the interest of a legal nature test, they really have a free hand because no matter what the court decides, it's not binding on them. They're not um, restricted by anything the court has decided if the court ends up rejecting whatever arguments they've put forward. It's different under the first option I talked about. If you come in as a treaty party because you want to state your position about how the Genocide Convention should be interpreted, if the court ends up rejecting your interpretation and adopts an interpretation that you disagree with, in principle, the intervening state is now also bound by that interpretation of the Genocide Convention, just like the main parties in the case would be, just like the Gambia and Myanmar would be. The Netherlands and Canada would also be bound by that interpretation of, of, the, of the treaty. And maybe they don't want that because that might then place some constraints on them going forward in their relations with other states. If they uh, wanted to intervene in the future in other cases about genocide at the ICJ, um, at some level, it's a, a theoretical concern, but I would think that the in-house lawyers in the, in the ministries of foreign affairs of both, both those countries are thinking about those things in determining what path to intervention they're going to take. Yes. It's not um, straightforward. Yes. Um, you know, taking your conversation in a slightly different direction, um, a less legal uh, or even, uh, you know, technical, um, but more, you know, on the public relations or, or global perception um, side. Because, you know, the Gambia uh, is fully backed by the OIC, the, you know, the, uh, the, the block of uh, 57 um, nation, um, you know, Muslim countries. Uh, this uh, basically confronts the Myanmar's, you know, uh, dominant narrative that, uh, you know, little Buddhist country is being ganged up upon by, you know, uh, you know, oil rich, uh, influential Muslim bloc, right? So, uh, you know, neither a Canada nor Netherlands can be described as remotely, um, you know, Islamic, you know, quite the contrary. Uh, uh, and also you've got a case of a Maldives. And so, so basically this, this base essentially um, you know, destroys the or demolishes the, uh, the uh, you know, the, the invented perception within Myanmar and around Myanmar that uh, this is a, a Buddhist versus a Muslim case, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, there have been discussions about should, should states um, come in, should states intervene in this case since the case was filed last November. And I think one of those arguments has been exactly what you're saying, that, um, Myanmar has created what um, to me looks like a false narrative trying to paint this in exactly the terms you've just described to frame it as a kind of a sectarian um, 
battle of, of Islam against uh, Buddhists. And, and we saw that in the provisional measures hearing back in December, that message being pushed um, maybe largely for domestic consumption in, in Myanmar. So I think that this does, um, as you say, uh, kind of destroy or strongly push back against that kind of narrative and really goes to show that um, the allegations in this case are of much broader concern. Um, it's not some kind of sectarian fight. There's a collective interest among all sorts of different states all over the world in upholding the values that are enshrined in the Genocide Convention, um, one of the oldest kind of human rights multilateral treaties uh, that has a special place in the international system. And so the Netherlands and Canada coming in, and if the Maldives comes in, it's, it's a pretty interesting constellation of, of countries, if only in the sense that you have this geographic spread. You have Africa, Asia, Europe, North America, um, all states from all of those places coming together to say there is a serious problem here uh, and we feel that uh, Myanmar has violated its obligations and needs to be held held to account for that. Yeah, uh, yeah, so I th I think that I can, political it, statement is, is very powerful, I think. Yeah, and also it changes the optics of uh, the, the entire you know, uh, court proceedings, right? And also, but but my, my you know, I, I'm curious as to why Maldives um, and uh, the two other, you know, uh, intervening states um, are not officially teaming up. Why just Canada and Netherlands? Why not bring in Maldives um, as a European, you know, um, state? I think Maldives is uh, represented by. Uh, you know, celebrity lawyer, uh, Amal Cloody. Um, and so what, what, going forward, you know, with the three intervening states, um, uh, will Myanmar be in a position to basically stall the pro uh, proceedings by, uh, you, know, the, uh, you know, raising all kinds of like uh, technical objections? You see what but, I mean? Yeah, this goes again to this question about which path the states decide to take. If they decide to come in and, and declare their right to intervene as parties to the Genocide Convention, that I don't think will slow down the proceedings very much at all. Um, if, they, if they decide to make a more novel argument and say, because of the nature of the obligations in the Genocide Convention, just like the Gambia, which is what in international law we call the non-injured state, that's one of the things that makes this case interesting is most cases at the ICJ, the state that brings the case has been directly injured in some way by what the other state is doing. That's different here. We have what, our, what international lawyers call a non-injured state, where Gambia isn't claiming that it, is, it has somehow been directly harmed by what Myanmar is alleged to have done. They are upholding this collective value in the Genocide Convention on behalf of, of the community. The, um, there, there is a legal principle uh, with the Latin word, uh, the, uh, the, uh, I'm a lay person here, but I think in the interest of um, other activists and, and uh, you know, non-legal citizens, can you explain the principle under right, underpinning this, you know, something like uh, Omni August, you know, like something yeah. that uh, or, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the treaty parties or, you know, states um, that signed the convention uh, 
are obligated, uh, um, you know, as a matter of legal principle, to all other uh, state parties. Can you explain that? Uh, because this is a, this this is a uh, this is a rather fundamental principle that is at work here. Yeah, I mean, this is this is kind of the linchpin of this whole case and why it was possible for the Gambia to bring it. We have what are called obligations uh, in this context, obligations erga omnes partes. So that means that the obligations that every state has under the Genocide Convention when it joins the convention are not obligations that the state owes individually on a case-by-case -case basis with one other state. You owe those obligations to every other party to the convention. Everyone has a collective interest in the commitment to prevent and punish genocide. And so if one member of the treaty uh, falls short and is in breach of its obligations, any other party to the treaty has a right to invoke um, that state's wrongdoing and take action. That's what erga omnis uh, obligations are, are all about. Uh, and that's why the Gambia has what, are, what legal, what lawyers would call has standing to sue here, uh, even though they haven't suffered an injury. But in the intervention context, what's really interesting, and this is something that's never been tested at the court, you know, if the Gambia as a non-injured state has standing to bring this case, well, doesn't that mean that every other party to the Genocide Convention has an interest of a legal nature that might be affected by the decision? I mean, Canada or the Netherlands could bring their own cases against Myanmar on the same facts. They could just start a new case that is making exactly the same uh, claims and allegations that the Gambia has made. So if they can do that, it's, it stands to reason that, well, surely they should be able to intervene under the, this more permissive rule of the interests of a legal nature. But no state has ever tried to intervene on that basis. Uh, and that's probably in part because, well, most situations where that would come up, you also could intervene under this other provision that says well, all parties to the treaty can intervene. So it's, it's a, that's a really interesting, you know, from an academic yeah, but standpoint, the, 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 really the, interesting. Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, I mean, the other, the other uh, potential scenario that has not been raised in any discussion is that because these are not criminal proceedings, right? These right. are legal disputes over the interpretation of the terms and obligations of the Genocide Convention as an interstate treaty, right? Because, because this is a legal, and, and, and the court, uh, you know, by issuing uh, provisional measures back in January, made it clear that uh, you know the assurance of those measures are not to be prejudicial towards the final ruling. You know, on the basis of the merits of the case, the facts and evidence and whatnot, right? Um, because we are also uh, hearing or reading news about you know other. Uh, you know, state parties potentially committing genocide. For instance, like, you know, uh, the state of China against uh, Uyghur Muslim, Muslims in Xinjiang, yeah? That case has, in the last six months, yeah, uh, the, received a tremendous global media coverage and government's attention, right? And so, the, so if we are saying that uh, all the state parties to the Genocide Convention will find it in their interest to intervene. Because if this case is decided 
you know, in um, you know, one fashion or another, it's going to be binding for all other states. In other words, it will impact the uh, other states and their conduct, you know, either now or in the future. So do you, you know, like we've got two uh, very powerful veto wielders on the Security Council, China and Russia. Both have categorically rejected um, uh, the, you know, the very credible um, genocide allegations against Myanmar as simply internal affairs, right? So do you, do you conceive of a scenario where these powerful states and other states that are, uh, you know, um, uh, influenced or that may be influenced by China and Russia could intervene on the side of the Myanmar and saying that they don't believe that, um, you know, the, 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 uh, the current uh, allegations have any merit or credibility. But this yeah, is, true mean, of, it, it is a potential issue, uh, you know, from, from my perspective. It's possible, uh, you know, that's an important thing. Intervention, a state that intervenes doesn't have to intervene and say they're taking any particular state's side. So you can intervene and express your support for the Gambia and say, um, you know, our arguments, we're, we are also going to make arguments that say Myanmar is in violation, um, which obviously then puts them on the same side as the Gambia, although their arguments might not be quite the same as the Gambia's. And in fact, I'd like to talk about why I think it's important that they not be exactly the same. Um, but you're absolutely right. There's nothing to prevent states uh, that agree with Myanmar's position from seeking to intervene under either of these two paths to intervention that I've outlined here. You know, I think uh, it's extremely unlikely that a state like China would do that because China has never ever participated in a uh, contentious proceeding at the International Court of Justice and I doubt they would deign to do so here. Uh, so the, you're saying that they did not participate in the uh you know, uh, South China Sea uh, uh, dispute, or is it? Well, that wasn't an ICJ case, but they didn't participate in that either. That's true. Right. I mean, in general, yeah, China does does not participate in interstate uh, adjudication or, or arbitration. Right. Um, let, let's go. Uh, let's go to you know. Fast forward. Let's just assume that, um, uh, that you know down the road uh, at the end of the road the icj you know finds myanmar in violation of the genocide convention yeah? e either um, as uh, acts of genocide or a full genocide right and 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 uh, the chinese um, ambassador in yangon or rangoon uh, met with myanmar state councillor aung san suu kyi who acted as the legal agent. She is the primary agent representing Myanmar, right? Uh, yes. she, um, uh, so the, the Chinese ambassador emphatically reiterated to, um, to Aung San Suu Kyi in an official meeting on behalf of his government in Beijing that China will stand you know, in defense of Myanmar in international arena, and also pledged, uh, you know, several million, um, um, you know, a hundred million yuan to help the um, uh, the state of Rakhine, you know, on humanitarian ground, 
ground because China has always maintained that this is just an internal affair, communal conflict, all that, right? So if, you know, if China continues to protect Myanmar in international fora, and the, given that, um, you know, there is no enforcement mechanism for the ICG, ICJ's final ruling uh, to really have an impact on Myanmar's conduct. What do you think is going likely to be, you know, material impact on the Rohingya community? Because they ultimately they are the injured party, right? Mm -hmm. Although they are not part of this um, um, legal right, right. dispute. Well, I mean, you're you're, you're right that. Um... The enforcement of ICJ judgments is a perennial um, topic of concern and anxiety. Uh, and when you have a state in the position of the defendant states, what we call the respondent state, that utterly, that is not interested in a settlement, that, that rejects the claims and maybe rejects the legitimacy of the, of the proceedings, um, you're in, you're in a very difficult position. And the envisioned role of the Security Council as an organ that could enforce ICJ judgments, which is the role given to it in the UN Charter, um, won't materialize here for the reasons you say, uh, if China is acting as, as, a, as the protector of, of Myanmar and can veto any potential Security Council action. In general, in, in this case, but in other cases too, uh, enforcement then sometimes comes, I mean, enforcement in international law in general is a very decentralized process where if you have a judgment, uh, it's then left to states acting individually or in informal coalitions to try to use the judgment as part of a broader um, diplomatic initiative to enforce change. So. I mean, it's very hard to speculate on if the Gambia prevails uh, is one thing um, which isn't guaranteed. And then there's the second question of even if the Gambia prevails, what kind of uh, judgment does the court give? Do they actually, do they simply declare that, well, Myanmar has violated the convention or do they go further and order Myanmar to take certain types of remedial action? Because then you really get into the question of, well, how do you enforce that? Um, it's a messy, tricky thing, but I'm, I'm not also willing to say that it's pointless. Um, I think it becomes part of this broader political process. And, and as you know, uh, in the conversations we've had about this case from before it existed up through now, you know, we've always talked about the fact that the case, ICJ case has to be seen as part of this broader project. It can't be counted upon as some kind of silver bullet that's going to solve um, all of the problems of the of the Rohingya or of Myanmar. Um, so, I mean, that's a long ways down the road. Uh, what, but to bring what your question back to this conversation about intervention, one thing, one political benefit, I think, of having states like the Netherlands and Canada come in as interveners is I think that that is very promising in terms of a long-term commitment on behalf of those states to be very active when it comes to this difficult, messy enforcement phase if we ever get there um, because they've made the decision now to put resources into this case not just to kind of issue press releases that say uh, 
we we support uh, what the Gambia is doing or we stand by the Rohingya or, or whatever, you know, they're actually devoting resources and political capital to this case. And once you've made that kind of investment, I would like to think you are in it for the long haul um, and you have skin in the game, as it were, and will be active players in terms of trying to um, make use of whatever decision emanates from the ICJ. Right. So that's I mean, another political benefit, political and legal benefit of, of, of states deciding to actually formally participate in the case. It kind of makes them partners with the Gambia, I would say, uh, in terms of long-term efforts to, to enforce the decision, or maybe a better way to put it is to use the decision as part of this bigger project aimed at affecting uh, positive change. Well, I mean, at the, you know, recently um, uh, you co-authored that piece, um, you know, out of the symposium um, on the ICJ's uh, proceedings, you know, with specific uh, respect to uh, confidentiality of uh, 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 Myanmar's first report, right? And uh, yeah. I think like in that article you mentioned that this is a very unusual and also a welcome move that Myanmar uh, was required as part of the provisional measures to report to uh, the ICJ the first four months from the uh, uh, the date of the uh, the provisional measures uh, issuance and then thereafter every six months uh, and and that was something that Gambia team did not ask for you know like uh, this road, uh, you know, routinization of report, uh, you know, throughout the case until the court, uh, the court reaches its final decision. Um, and then I think, like in your article, um, you quoted um, some Rohingyas feeling really frustrated because their expectations were way too high, and what the court could deliver uh, is, is rather limited, and it will take a lot longer, right? Uh, it, it, you know, if indeed, uh, um, you know, have a positive outcome that uh, Rohingya wanted. Can you explain, you know, if there are any, you know, rules and regulations uh, that will prevent the, you know, the judges or the court from essentially at least informing the ultimate injured party, in this case, uh, you know, uh, the Rohingya community, because like, you know, Tonkin, the president of the uh, Burmese Rohingya organization in UK was quoted in your article as well, saying that, you know, this is an exist, this is not just simply a legal dispute between two member states of uh, the genocide convention. This is our existential issue. You know, you're holding the fate of our community. The court is holding the court, uh, the fate of the Rohingya community as a whole. And we are left in the dark. I mean, that's a, a very legitimate, intellectually and morally speaking, uh, point and objection to raise. You know, the, then, uh, the, I, I, you know, after having read your piece um, and, and the piece by your colleagues, I know that uh, you are fully in support of making Myanmar's report, as well as Gambia's, um, you know, uh, rebuttals or reports, uh, public. Can you walk us through, you know, why this is a, such an important, you know, issue right. and what the court should um, 
do in your right. opinion? Yeah, so you're you're absolutely right. Um, in in this piece that that um, some colleagues and I published on the Opinio Juris um, Legal International Law blog uh, last week as part of a symposium on different lots of different issues relating to the Rohingya situation. Um, yes, we make the case that um, Myanmar's uh, periodic reports about how it's implementing the court's provisional measures order from January. Uh, and remember that the court more or less told Myanmar to do two things, um, although in very broad, vague terms, which have, has given rise, I think, to some of the overinflated expectations, maybe. But uh, the court told Myanmar to um, take all measures within its power to prevent acts of genocide from taking place, and also to take measures to preserve evidence uh, relating to the allegations in the case. And then to, as you say, uh, do, file an initial report after four months and then every six months thereafter. And that is different from what the Gambia asked for, which was just an initial report from both sides, uh, not this kind of ongoing reporting requirement, which I thought really suggested the court's view that the gravity of the situation was serious enough for ongoing scrutiny to be part of the court's role. Um, you know, the court, it's not the, that unusual for the court these days to impose this kind of reporting requirement. They've done so in about, I think, half of the times when they've issued provisional measures or so over the last 20 years, roughly. Um, but they haven't all, they, they haven't in some cases where it seems like it would have been an obvious thing to do, which did make it seem more important here. Um, and the reason that uh, Bruno and Kingsley and I wrote that piece is in part because um, Groups that are working in the in the camps in Bangladesh have had these meetings with with Rohingya individuals who are very frustrated, not just because they're frustrated at the, maybe realizing that the ICJ process isn't going to have immediate uh, benefits uh, or immediately improve their situation necessarily, but then this this finer, more specific point about frustration that um, these reports that maybe were celebrated when the court issued its order in January. Oh, this is great. Myanmar is going to really be held to account. They're going to have to file these reports. And then the disappointment when it turned out that those reports were not public, um, which isn't a surprise. Th these types of reports have never been public at the time they're made when, in other cases where the court has ordered this. Eventually, they would probably be published as part of the court's official publications, but that's years away when they're not you know, directly useful in terms of trying to enforce things. So, um, you know, one reason I felt strongly about writing that piece is I really wanted to dispel the misconception that some frustrated people might have, which might be an assumption that because the reports aren't being disclosed or are confidential, that that somehow means the court simply accepts at face value whatever Myanmar has reported or considers Myanmar to be in perfect compliance with the provisional measures, it doesn't mean necessarily mean any of those things. Um, so that those types of conclusions, which I can understand why that would be very distressing if that was your reaction to the reports being confidential, those are understandable reactions, but they aren't, they are not ultimately well-founded. The, the reports are being confidential because of more archaic uh, traditions within the court, I would say. But that, that, 
the point we really wanted to make was that if the purpose of the reporting requirement is to um, put additional pressure on Myanmar to be very careful about not engaging in activity that runs the risk of constituting acts of genocide, um, the value of those reports would be greatly enhanced by them being public, not just because it's important as a matter of principle to keep the real injured party informed about what's going on, although I agree that that's really important, but also because by those reports being public, other parties, whether that means Rohingya individuals um, who can tell what's going on, or human rights monitoring groups, or other people who are able to assess what Myanmar is saying, those people might be better placed to evaluate those reports than the Gambia and its legal team. Right. Um, there are also, you know, uh, other um, legal scholars or experts, uh, you know, watching the case very closely, um, who have just very recently uh, raised the issue of um, the goal of provisional measures, which is like to have a material impact on the remaining Rohingyas, you know, uh, roughly half a million uh, inside Myanmar, right? Because provisional measures are primarily uh, to benefit and, and protect basically uh, the Rohingyas who are still within the boundaries of Myanmar, right? Not, yeah. not one million in, um, in Bangladesh refugee camps. And what they're saying is that, you know, Myanmar may come up with rather dis disingenuous uh, reporting, right? Uh, while, uh, you know, making itself appear to comply with the provisional measures in letters while ignoring the, uh, the spirit of the measures. The spirit of the measure is, you know, basically, Rohingyas are the provisionally declared uh, a protected group under the Genocide Convention, and uh, you know the further incitement or acts of genocide um, must cease. Yeah, uh, by Myanmar um, and all the individuals and organizations under Myanmar's uh, both territorial and sovereign control. So, uh, how do you respond to the the question of uh, intended impact not being uh, realized uh, right. in, in the process of Myanmar trying to play tricks, right? And because yeah. this is also a legal game, as you know, uh, that Myanmar legal team will play, you know, to their advantage. I think there, so I have something that I've written that will be coming out soon about different ways of interpreting the provisional measures order. Um, because I think a lot of uh, civil society groups and NGOs have understandably pushed for the broadest possible interpretation of what those measures require. Uh, and that's not necessarily the interpretation that I would uh, adopt, um, which I, I take a more limited view of what they require, um, but they, they still require a significant amount. But I would really put the emphasis on their preventive nature. They are meant to prevent Myanmar from engaging in activity, especially any activity similar to the activity alleged in the main case, so the types of things that happened in, in Rakhine in 2016 and 2017. Whether it requires Myanmar to take affirmative steps to start correcting the situation uh, in Myanmar, in Rakhine, is a more contentious question. But I would, to, I would connect this to the point about the reporting requirements being public, um, because 
it's within the Gambia's right to go back to the court at any time to seek modified or new provisional measures, depending on new information that comes to light. That's one of the purposes of the reporting requirements, I think, is to help identify places where there is um, disagreement or really a need for measures to be more specific or to go further. Um, and that's another reason why those reports being public, I think, is important because it will help to maybe focus or pinpoint what further provisional measures might be appropriate while the case is pending. Right. I think right. Th those measures would need to be quite focused and narrow, but that doesn't mean they, that there shouldn't be more provisional measures, and especially in relation to new things that have happened since January. I mean, in January, we weren't faced with um, COVID-19, uh, which some reports suggest that the, the challenging response that all, like all governments face a very challenging response, but there are concerns that um, the response to COVID-19 is being used as a cover to impose new forms of discrimination or persecution against the Rohingya, uh, things like that. Or specifically, for example, the UN um, High Commissioner for Human Rights in, in June uh, made a statement to the Human Rights Council about reports of Rohingya villages again being burned down during May. That's That falls squarely within the type of conduct that the provisional measures were intended to prevent, I would say. Yeah. So I might disagree with some NGOs about other uh, places, you know, do the provisional measures extend this far or not. But, I mean, burning down abandoned villages, uh, there's no question that that runs afoul of the provisional measures order. Um, yeah, but specific, so specifically the preservation of, uh, you know, basically crime scene, right, of the evidence. <laughs> but the other one is, uh, you know, there were one of the issues, uh, you know, or, or concrete examples that has been presented as the evidence that um, Myanmar uh, continues uh, to disregard, or Myanmar is disregarding the, uh, or refusing to comply, uh, in effect, uh, on the ground uh, with the provisional measures. Uh, you know, one specific example is the uh, continued, um, in, um, you know, uh, the internet ban in uh, Rohingya and Rakhine area, especially, uh, you know, when uh, there have been like, you know, fierce uh, fightings between, uh, you know, the Arakan army, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the non-Rohingya group fighting uh, the, uh, the, against a, a central government troops in Rakhine state, right? And, uh, the, uh, to, you know, I, I should mention this. Uh, uh, today is the date uh, when Myanmar court in Rangoon is scheduled to announce the sentencing of a Burmese dissident poet who raised the issue uh, and hang the uh, you know issue against the internet ban, specifically telling the government that you know it needs to lift the internet ban unless the the purpose of the ban is to basically uh, you know shut down all kinds of communications um, so that they could continue to commit war crimes and other crimes against communities in Rakhine, right? And so here is the state. The ICJ say, you know, uh, that you comply with uh, the, these measures, and the state goes after, yeah, uh, the, the Burmese citizen within its territory that raises the objection 
against um, you know this blanket internet ban, yeah, as a smoke screen, uh, you know, th uh, behind which Myanmar troops and security forces can continue to do harm to communities over there. Uh, mm. you know, so so I think like th th this is th this raises a serious issue uh, of Myanmar's uh, political will and uh, you know the uh, preparedness to comply with the the court's provisional measure doesn't it yeah and um i mean it's really on the gambia um to decide how aggressively it wants to use provisional measures to try to um you know play a really active role while at the same time preparing the main case i mean that's one of the that's um, maybe to avoid any confusion. If states like the Netherlands and Canada or Maldives intervene in the case, that unless they intervene as a party, which again, I think is unlikely, um, they, wouldn't, they would not be in a position to have anything to do with provisional measures. They wouldn't be able to request um, new provisional measures. That's something that only a party can, can do. Now, of course, they could be providing logistical or financial support to the Gambia if those states feel, well, it's really important, the Gambia, that, that you, um, you know, keep Myanmar's feet to the fire, as it were, and um, don't kind of depend on the existing measures being sufficient. If there, is, if there are concerns that the situation is deteriorating or that the provisional measures aren't living up to the, the fairly minimal baseline that I would put on them, um, you know that's that's an argument for the Gambia taking further action while while the case is pending, uh, and these states that want to intervene, that's a way that they can they can support the Gambia, but they can't probably do that them, themselves. Right. Yeah, I know you're in favor of uh, you know G Gambia uh, uh, essentially asking for modification or more uh, you know uh, uh, specific and detailed. Uh, requirements you know from from the ICJ with respect to provisional measures because the the measures are um, you know that are left to be interpreted um, quite liberally by different parties right but um but in the remaining say say five to uh, seven minutes uh, uh, we will reach a one hour mark uh, pretty soon um, I want you to address the issue of <clears throat> um, Facebook refusal uh, to essentially cooperate uh, uh, with the Gambia. You know, the, the Gambia uh, requested uh, through um, the U.S. court system that the Facebook release, uh, uh, you know, not uh, a small number of um, Facebook accounts that, that Facebook um, shut down, which were operated by Myanmar military and um, parties uh, that uh, uh, believed to be involved in inciting genocide against Rohingya, right? And, yeah. and this is, I mean, as a Burmese person myself, uh, this is rather outrageous and uh, morally and also intellectually, uh, because morally, because Facebook uh, is officially named uh, basically in the the key hate platform by the UN fact-finding mission, yeah, uh, on, on which, um, you know, the uh, incitement of genocide was rather effectively mobilized. And the other one was, um, of course, like, you know, Facebook legal argument 
is uh, intellectually dishonest because the Gambia team, as I understand it, as a layperson, did not ask for broad, um, you know, uh, the, the the release of like, you know, thousands of, uh, you know, uh, accounts and the content. And then I, I, I read that your Twitter thread that was uh, rather uh, enlightening. Can you uh, explain what the issue is here and why yeah. Facebook uh, uh, refusal to cooperate is rather disingenuous and, and outrageous? Okay, I'm, I don't know if I'll describe it as disingenuous and outrageous, uh, but let me try to summarize what's happening. So in June, uh, the Gambia started a legal proceedings against Facebook in the US, and the purpose of this is to obtain documents from Facebook that it can use in the ICJ case. Uh, and of course, this goes to what you're saying, uh, as the UN fact-finding mission documented and other uh, entities have, have shown, the Facebook platform was used extensively by Myanmar officials, military officials, and groups affiliated with the government and the military to incite hatred, to incite violence um, against the Rohingya. Uh, and then Facebook eventually took down a lot of that material or closed accounts or took down posts and things. Too late for it to prevent it having its pernicious effect, but they did take that stuff down and now they've preserved it. And so the Gambia is asking for uh, a court order in the U.S. that would require Facebook to provide, to turn over a lot of these electronic files that are no longer public. The Gambia's request is a mix of things. So some of it relates to material that was public at some time in the past and that Facebook took down. Then there, it also though reaches things like drafts that were maybe never posted or private communications, which I assume kind of refers to messages that might've been sent on Facebook Messenger or things like that, that wouldn't have been public. Uh, and I emphasize that difference between what was public and what was never public, because I think it probably matters here. As you say, Facebook's main argument is a, a privacy law argument, which might seem distasteful or morally abhorrent, but legally speaking, I don't think it's crazy. Um, Facebook is talking, is invoking this um, privacy law in the US called the Stored Communications Act, which limits or places uh, strict rules on when electronic communication providers like Facebook um, are allowed to disclose private information um, that belongs to other people, to users. Um, and so Facebook says we can't, if the court were to order, were to grant um, the Gambia's request here, it would put us in a position of having to violate the law in order to comply with the subpoena, the request for documents, and that can't be right. And so now there've been several rounds of, of briefing and the Gambia's final um, legal argument is actually due today. And if I see that in time, I'll do my fourth or whatever Twitter thread describing the arguments. Um, but in the last round, I mean, I think Facebook has um, some strong arguments about why some of the material that the Gambia has requested is protected by this Stored Communications Act, by this US privacy law and why Facebook, at least in this setting, can't release that information. I think it remains much less clear why, however, material that was at some point public and that Facebook then decided to take down because it violated its terms and services agreement or for any other reason, 
why that material is protected by this privacy law. Because surely if it was once made public, there was no expectation of privacy. So that's the real legal issue that the, the US court hearing this is gonna have to decide, I think. And hopefully there would be a decision on that pretty soon. But really importantly, in its last legal filing in that case, Facebook said, we have begun cooperating with the um, uh, independent investigative mechanism for Myanmar, this body that the UN Human Rights Council set up. And they say they've started turning over some of this uh, incendiary um, material that was previously taken down. And they've even said, and the Gambia should simply go and get that information from the IIMM if they want to use it in the case. Um, so in, on one hand, maybe the Gambia can just do that and that's their way around this legal problem in the US. But it also raises some concerns because, or questions, because, well, if, if Facebook is able to make those disclosures to the IIMM, exactly. why exactly. can't it make the same disclosures directly to the Gambia? That, that, that is why, Mike, so, sorry, to, sorry to interrupt, that is why I, I, I call this behavior disingenuous because, mm. you know, on one hand, when it's pressed within the US court system, it shields itself using this privacy law that you mentioned. And then like, uh, you know, uh, it, it turns some of the materials over to um, Nicholas Komjian's office in Geneva, you know, the um, IIMM, yeah. And, um, you know, the, uh, about a week ago on the, um, the third um, genocide memorial, uh, the Mr. Komjian uh, spoke, um, you know, on our, um, you know, ma marathon rally that lasted five five hours plus on the uh, Free Will Angel Coalition site. Uh, um, the, he basically said, uh, uh, you know, that the mission of the IMMM um, is, you know, it, it goes be obviously beyond, um, um, you know, Rohingya case and in all human persons that residing within the territory of Myanmar uh, is a concern of this uh, um, uh, IIMM, right? The UN um, uh, Human Rights Council uh, established and the General Assembly mandated body, right? And so the, 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 his mission or the, the mission of his um, uh, mechanism is to, to investigate all kinds of like, you know, uh, the, um, human rights violations and also to help uh, prepare cases for future tribunals for either criminal or otherwise, right? Um, and so why is Facebook cooperating in, in apparent violation of its, uh, you know, uh, the privacy law that it cites in the case of, um, um, you know, Gambia's team's request? Right? Yeah. Why, why not? Like you said, you know, the, there's nothing that, you know, if, if they can, if the Facebook can turn over the materials to IMM in Geneva, they can surely turn the uh, material over to, uh, the, you know, Gambia's lawyer, legal team, yeah? particularly because like, you know, that legal team is pursuing something that can potentially have an impact and, and using, you know, the, the, you know, basically almost a semi-sacrosan genocide convention. Yeah. So I there's a, this, this is like, you know, the, the, uh, uh, th this, is, this is rather contradictory. I think one of the problems or points of confusion maybe comes from the way the Gambia's legal team on this presented the request because they, they lumped together the materials that were previously public and this other stuff that maybe was never public. Um, 
probably trying, you know, trying to hit a home run and, and get everything. And that has allowed Facebook to also make these kinds of blanket arguments that attack the entire request, even though there might be parts of the request that can be met. And so it kind of falls on the judge um, to sort that out. And we'll see if, if they do. But you know, in a way, it's maybe a risky strategy. What I do think is positive is that if, again, if uh, Facebook has been providing some materials to the IIMM, it seems like there's you know, a pretty decent prospect that the Gambia's legal team and the ICJ case would be able to get a hold of that and make use of it. Um, but it may not be as much as, as they want, but it's better than nothing. Um, so we'll see what's gonna happen with that. I mean, there should be this filing today. And um, uh, I mean, the Gambia's first legal uh, brief to the ICJ is due in October, so they don't have much time. Um, and uh, presumably they would prefer to be able to make that filing based on this information that they're trying to obtain from Facebook. So uh, the court might be feel under some pressure to decide the question quickly. And then if they do grant the request in part, at least, you still have to actually, you know, Facebook has to process the information and turn it over and all of that, all of that stuff takes time. Um, so we'll see what happens, but you know, some some of Facebook's arguments are uh, are correct. It seems to me from reading the, the filings, I do think they were disingenuous in their initial response to the Gambia's request, where they claimed that the request was exceedingly broad and would be impossible to comply with. That did seem um, genuinely disingenuous to me because the re the request, while not small, was organized in a way that was quite specific. Well, it's um, like you're just about 100 plus accounts, uh, uh, you know, as, as I understand yeah. it. And I, I think you effectively shot that uh, Facebook legal argument down in your Twitter thread. And so, um, Mike, um, we are just past one hour. <laughs> I don't want uh, that. I know you've got um, uh, the, the work to do. And so I don't want to take up uh, too much of your time. Uh, any final thought um, on, um, on, on the latest developments? Um, I think, yeah, the last, the last thing I'd want to say, which is a <clears throat> point I didn't get a chance to make earlier about this, this news from Netherlands and, and Canada and this real interest in, well, third states coming in, you know, on the surface, it looks, it looks like a positive development. And you and I talked about the kind of, at a political level, why this can be uh, a good thing. Um, you know, when, when the case was first filed and people started making the case for intervention though, I was pretty skeptical. And my thinking has evolved on it a little bit, but the reasons why I was skeptical still matter, I think. Um, because originally a lot of people were calling on other states to intervene, at least the things I saw, op-ed pieces and things like that you know, saying states should intervene to show solidarity with the Gambia and to show their support for the Rohingya. That is politically appealing, and I understand that impulse entirely. But as a legal matter, that is not that interesting and, and could have downsides. So if you intervene as a third state in this ICJ case and you show up at the, at the Peace Palace and you more or less say, we agree with the Gambia's arguments and we we urge the court to uh, follow what the Gambia is is saying. You know that doesn't legally that doesn't add anything. The court isn't going to be affected really by the fact that two or three or four states are 
are lining up behind the Gambia. There has to be some kind of added value, legally speaking. And so that means making other arguments. And we talked about how, well, maybe the Netherlands and Canada are going to make, uh, put a particular focus on sexual and gender-based crimes and try to convince the court to develop its interpretation of the Genocide Convention um, in a new direction on that particular component of the case. And that could be really useful. Uh, and the more that these states coordinate with each other to some degree, uh, I mean, that's probably a good thing because the downside of intervention is it simply makes the proceedings messier. It creates more paper. It risks duplication of arguments or even worse, kind of duplication of arguments, but with tiny variations that the court then has to deal with, but that don't help move things along. Um, and, and legally, there are risks too, because you don't want to have states coming in and making arguments that don't complement each other, but actually risk undermining each other. And so it's important that uh, a lot of care goes into the arguments that any intervening state wants to make if it ultimately shares the same goal as the Gambia. Yeah, I, I, those, are, those are the things I've been <clears throat> concerned about and why I was, a pretty, I was pretty lukewarm on some of these intervention proposals earlier on. But I've come around to seeing the potential advantages too of um, not only on the political side as we talked about, but on the legal side of states being able to make arguments that work together to help the court see different paths to the outcome that all of these intervening states, I think, uh, would like to see. And yeah, so, I, I, I have to uh, agree fully with you on this. I, I think the, you know, although I'm not a lawyer, um, um, you know, with all the uh, nuanced understandings of the proceedings, uh, it, it seems to me that, um, uh, you know, the, the, there, there will be one joint legal team between the Canadian and Netherlands government, right? Seems that way. Um, um, and then like, you, you have the Gambia team um, uh, as represented by people like, uh, uh, you know, uh, the QC, Philip Sands, and, uh, you know, his uh, American counterpart in Washington, right? Uh, the, but Paul Richter, right? Yeah. Uh, and then, like, you will have Amal Clooney. Um, I would assume that... Um, uh, these legal minds would bang their heads together to make sure that you know the the uh, uh, the cases or the interventions that uh, they br they bring forward uh, uh, complement and reinforce e uh, each other's arguments rather than you know uh, allow Myanmar to basically uh, use one intervention against the central case. Exactly. Yeah. And so yeah, and that's that's the risk and that's the that's the challenge. Um and, and the court will have never will never have seen anything like this. There has never been a contentious case, so a case a state to state case with two states where you had um three intervening states. Um the court has had has another function of these advisory opinion proceedings where you might have lots of states participating. So they have dealt with situations where you have a dozen, 20, 30 states maybe making written submissions and, and appearing in court. But that's, that's quite different. Um, so this, this is a new territory for, for the court, um, which is interesting um, and says something powerful, but there are, are risks to it too. And you, know, you know, it's also, as you know, we, I think you mentioned that there are calls for more states to intervene now. 
And I guess I'd say maybe as my final closing uh, remark here is that there are other ways to be involved aside from joining the ICJ case. And this goes back, I think, to what we've talked about that, well, the ICJ case should be part of a broader multilateral effort to address the situation. How else might you participate? Well, you can support the case. A state could support the ICJ case without intervening, whether that means providing uh, evidence or in, in, interesting evidence to the Gambia's team, whether that means providing financial resources. Um, there is also other ways to be involved that have nothing to do with the ICJ case. So yeah, like, you know, like, like you know, but, but essentially supporting uh, the you know Rohingya community that that uh, in particularly uh, survivors community on the on the Bangladeshi soil, where yeah. three hundred thousand you know school going age Rohingya from kindergarten all the way to university levels uh, have you know no real meaningful education you know like uh, you know st states like your Ireland uh, or like others uh, who are not. Uh, involved in the uh, Gambia versus Myanmar case, I mean they they could be looking at like a, a zillion other potential um, you know initiatives that can really empower the uh, Rohingya community. I mean, yeah, exactly. well, why why not like you know uh, give a hundred scholarships to um, young Rohingyas who want to study international law? You know, exactly. you know exactly. what I mean? Exactly. It's just one well, subject. Know. It grabs a lot of headlines for a state to come in and announce that they're going to participate in the case. And I'm not trying to take anything away from the announcements that Canada and the Netherlands and Maldives previously made in that regard. But exactly, that's what I was gonna say. If states want to support the case, that support can be redirected towards trying to alleviate the conditions in the camps in Bangladesh or working with the Bangladeshi government to improve uh, the situation of, of the Rohingya in the camps, or um, efforts, you know, states need to be engaged on all diplomatic fronts here, trying to um, engage with Myanmar to the extent it's possible, but also engaging with states like Japan that uh, have given a lot of support to the regime in, in Myanmar, but might have other uh, interests too. So there's a huge range of ways that states can be involved that go beyond the ICJ case. And I worry a little bit about the kind of continued drumbeat for, oh great, you know, let's get let's get more states to intervene. I'm I'm skeptical that that's the best uh, use of resources and I worry a little bit that it again puts you know all all the eggs in one basket, the ICJ basket when Yeah, well because you know that's you need a lot of baskets. Yeah, I mean, like you know, the the um, uh, the lawsuits, uh, particularly ICJ and ICC cases against uh, Burma or Myanmar, are mediagenic, and uh, you know, politicians can claim uh, credit that they're doing something, while the Rohingya communities around the world, particularly you know, in refugee camps in Malaysia as well as in uh, Bangladesh or like you know, uh, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, the, the the plight of the uh, the, the refugees uh, continues to be in a rather deplorable situation, you know. And and uh, I mean, as we speak, um, you know, the uh, barbed wire fences are being erected, um, you know, in the thirty plus uh, camps in Bangladesh. Uh, the internet ban um, is not fully lifted. 
um, you know, the, the, the United States at your own, um, you know, country or government, uh, you know, has given, you know, over 700 million U.S. dollar in humanitarian aid um, since 2017 exodus. Uh, the you know, out of 300,000 um, Rohingya school-going age youth and children, only at the 10,000, um, you know, have access to, you know, some form of education. And so, you know, uh, I mean, we, the, we, we cannot let the lawsuits overwhelm and overshadow uh, the, you know, continuing subhuman conditions that Rohingya are continued uh, to be kept in. And so, but um, but anyway, like we can go on, on and on and on on these issues. But uh, thanks so much. And I, I've been talking to uh, Michael Backer, uh, adjunct assistant professor at uh, uh, Trinity College Dublin, and a PhD candidate at Cambridge, and um, former legal um, uh, associate legal officer at the International Court of Justice, where he worked for uh, four years. And uh, Mike has been a major, uh, you know, legal. Um, mind uh, on the ICJ case uh, way before the case was brought to uh, by um, Gambia. He was the first person, uh, to the best of my knowledge, uh, to introduce the idea that uh, ICJ could be a, a, a vehicle for justice and accountability for Rohingyas. He introduced this uh, idea at the uh, <clears throat> Free Rohingya Coalition Conference at the French National Assembly back in June 2018. Um, that he is a rather understated and humble um, a legal scholar. Uh, Mike said that, thank you so much. And you owe me, you owe me a coffee for a nice introduction and a conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> no, always, I, I mean every word of it. It's, it's always a pleasure to speak with you, Zarni, and I hope that we have a chance to talk again soon. Yeah, thanks so much. I look forward to reading your Twitter thread after you... Um, um, you know, um, let's see the, uh, you've seen the uh, Gambia's um, um, uh, argument today. Yeah. Stay tuned. Yeah, thank you so much, Mike. Have a good day. Bye now. Yeah, bye.